All right, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23, 2 Samuel chapter 23. The title of today's message is Loyalty in a Day of Abandonment, Loyalty in a Day of Abandonment. As you're turning there, just by way of intro and just a, a little synopsis maybe, today I want to talk to you about loyalty in a day of abandonment, as the title suggests. In our day, in our culture, it's, it's no surprise that we would need a, a sermon like this on this topic because we have become very, very good in our culture at abandoning those who need us and those who rely on us at the whim, uh, uh, at, at, a, at any old whim or at the drop of a hat. It's, can I get agreement on that? For the most part, our culture, our generation, and the previous generation, I think, I think if you go back a couple of generations, it gets a lot better. You see people like my grandparents uh, on my mom's side and my grandparents on my uh, dad's side, my grandmother just passed away not long ago on my mom's side, uh, but they were together 50 plus years. How many years? 50, 57 years. Uh, they were married 57 years before she passed. And my grandparents on my dad's side, they are still married and, and they're getting, uh, they're, they're approaching that many years too. I'm not sure. Jonathan, you know how many years? Terrible son. Huh? Over 50? Yeah, yeah, over 50. So I think if we go back a couple generations, obviously there's still abandonment issues in any culture in any time that you want to think about. But I, I think that we can rightly and easily examine our culture and examine our times and see that at least today it's a lot easier to abandon uh, whatever you're committed to than it has been in times past. If we look at the divorce rate in our country today, the, actually the divorce rate among Christians is no different than the divorce rate among non-Christians, at least professing Christians and uh, non-professing uh, people who do not even claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's roughly 50%, and I think it's creeping upward. But this morning I'm not going to talk explicitly and solely about marriage, although the principles that I'm going to be talking about this morning absolutely do pertain to marriage. They would, they would pertain to any relationship that you're in or really any commitment that you're in, whether it be a, a job or a marriage relationship, a relationship with your sons and daughters, a relationship with a friend, whatever it might be, a commitment that you've made to work out a commitment that you've made to eat right, or whatever the case might be, I want to talk to you this morning about loyalty and commitment and steadfastness and those things like that. I do believe that loyalty in and of itself would pertain more to human relationships, but I think the principles could relate to commitment in general, whatever you're going to be committed to. What I'm going to be, the place I'm going to be starting this morning in the scriptures is a, probably a fairly familiar story to you if you read your Bible or if you've been in church for very long, is the story of David's mighty men. And it's really more than, or, or it's not quite a story, it is, it is a story in, in some ways, but it's a historical account 
of David's mighty men. And what I'm going to be focusing on this morning is the three of the 30 that set themselves apart as David's mighty men and even even greater way, they were known as the three. For there was three that was exceptionally loyal to David and to his cause. So if you will, turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. If you're already there, say amen. And if you could, stand to your feet in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. So I want to start in 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to start with verse 14. And I'll read through verse 17. David was then in the stronghold of the garrison of the Philistines, uh, was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. There is so much meat and potatoes in this verse, th these verses. So many wonderful principles that we could draw from in the example, not just of the three mighty men who were willing to risk themselves, but of David's response to what the three mighty men did in, uh, in light of who God was and how valuable he thought that their lives were and how um, exceedingly honored he was by what they did. But I just want to point out a few things here, and those few things are I want to look at what is true loyalty, and I want to look at the truest loyalty, so that next level of loyalty, and I want to look at the means of loyalty. So what is it? What is, what is its perfection, and then how do we get there? Okay? What is loyalty? What does it look like when it's done in a way that it cannot be topped? And then how do we get there? In other words, I want to answer the question, how do we get to a place where we can demonstrate not just loyalty, we can demonstrate loyalty, but that we can demonstrate the truest sense of loyalty and it not be fleeting from us and that we can guard ourselves against being those who turn tail and run at the slightest sign of difficulty, okay? Now, as we go through, I'm sure I'll uh, sniff out a rabbit or two, so just bear with me, because I will say that this text lends itself to some amazing truths and insights that we are sure to watch pop out of the ground as we toil the soil, okay? So, True loyalty as it's found in 2 Samuel 23 and then in several other places in the scripture. Well, let's read it again and let's kind of touch on uh, what was going on. First, I want to go back and I want to read a little bit about these three men. And it gives us a little bit of a description about these three men. And as we go through, I want you to try to think and pick out uh, these, uh, th th these um descriptions and characteristics of the type of men that could attain to the three 
Okay, and just as a side note here, I just sniffed a rabbit. Just as a side note here, how many did Jesus Christ have that were truly loyal to, loyal to him beyond all measure? Three, yes. So he had 12, one of them was the devil, but out of the 12, he had the three, and the three were solid. But we're going to ask ourselves, why were they solid, and can we be solid, okay? So, getting back to the text at hand, it says here, let's go back to verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men of David, whom David had. Joshebashebathes, <laughs> wow, right? Who was it the other night? Was it you, Dakota, that was like, no, somebody was, was it you that was, we were meeting the other night, and, and they were like, David had to feel odd. Was that you that said that? Who said that to me? Donnie. Donnie said, David had to feel weird, and it caught me off guard. We were talking about some of this. We were talking about the mighty men on Wednesday, and I was like, why? He was like, well, he had, I mean, his name was David, and he's surrounded by Joshua, and Shemona, and Eleazar, and you know, it, this is, you know, what's your name? David. <laughs> you know, so anyway, uh, let's get back to here. So these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshebashebeth, uh, a Tukanamanite. I mean, come on, God's just laughing. He did, he did this to me. He was chief of the three. Okay, he was chief of the three because he had the longest, most complicated name. Now, what does it say about this guy? And I'm just going to call him Josh, okay? I'm going to call him Josh from now on. I think he'd be okay with that. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Now, I don't think that when he wielded the spear against the 800, it was like one death you know, throw and, and 800 fell dead. No, I believe that he was warring and took out 800 men in one battle, okay? He, he was a bad man, right? And, and listen, as we go through this too, especially the men in here and, and, the young, and the young men, the boys, I want you to pay attention to how manly and strong and courageous these men were, okay? I say that, I, I just chased that rabbit, I know, but it was a good one because I say that in the face of a culture that's telling you that you need to be more woman-like, okay? You need to be more female. You need, to be, you need to be just like a woman. As a matter of fact, they say there is no difference between a man and a woman. I call them a bunch of liars, a bunch of, of, of absolute destructive monsters who's looking to rob our boys of manhood and who are looking to to rob our godly women of womanhood okay you cannot make men and women equal without destroying both amen okay so watch what uh, a man is and ladies you can watch what a man is too of something that you could look for in a man okay so he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time and next to him among the three men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahahi, Dada, we can say it that way. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. So here we are, the, the men of Israel, the army, uh, they ran, they cowered, they withdrew, they went away. David was standing there with Eleazar, and Eleazar did not turn and run with the others, he remained. He rose and struck down the Philistines. I love this part. 
he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Okay? The picture in my mind, if you can, if you can gather it together in your mind, is that Eleazar was another bad man. He was, he was convicted. He was loyal. He had great conviction, I mean. He was loyal. He was committed even unto death. When the rest of the army turned and fled, he held the pass. He would not lay down. His commander, his chief, stayed with him. Together they slay, I don't know how many, countless. The text says that he used the sword. Josh used the spear. And he had fought and piled up the bodies until his arm, I'm supposing, his arm cramped up to the degree that he could not he could not let loose of the sword his sword literally cramped and clung to the sword so he could not let go of it and when the battle was over bodies apparently were piled around him so that those who would come when it was all said and done would have to strip the bodies off of Eleazar in my mind a temple I, I picture a uh, a pyramid of dead bodies that he had killed and he's like somebody get this sword off of my hand and they're just peeling bodies off to get to Eleazar so that they can take his hand off the sword the commitment and the loyalty and the complete and utter uh, resolve is fantastic it's amazing it's a lost art in our day it is a lost conviction in our day for the most part you won't find a man like this. You won't find a woman like this. And if you do, get next to them. Develop a relationship with them. Sit under their teaching. Sit under their words because you're going to want to know how they do what they do and what is the secret to their loyalty and to their utter disregard for their own life to please those around them and not in a self-satisfying or a self-exalting way but a way that is pure loyalty for that person and for that cause. It goes on. His hands uh, clung to the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Verse 11, And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistine, uh, Philistines. Again, we have one man who was there. Battle arose. A scenario arose where they were going to have to fight, and the army deserts him. He was abandoned, but he had the question to answer, will I remain faithful to my commander-in-chief and to my nation, or will I flee with the rest of the army? which obviously put him in, at a greater risk, and, and the odds were stacked against him even more so. It says, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. In all three instances, we see that the men were absolutely dedicated and committed to what God had called them to. They were absolutely committed to the man that God had anointed over them. And they were willing to die in order to remain loyal to the one that God had called them to and to the, and to the cause that God had called them to. But we also see in their steadfast loyalty, they weren't scared to die. But God 
showed favor on them and granted to them the victory against all odds. Because what we're not saying is now, these men, these three men were, were amazing men. They were bad to the bone. They could fight. They really could. These were warriors. But these weren't the type of warriors that could defeat 800 men on their own. They weren't the type of warriors that could overcome Philistine armies on their own. But in each situation, we see that the Lord showed favor to them and granted them the victory because of their loyal, uh, their loyal commitment and because of his cause. Is that God cannot fail. God will not fail. And when God desires to do it and sets his mind to do it, and when he decrees it, it's going to happen. It cannot fail. And I would say, just as a side note here, even as the main note, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. The gospel will go forth. The gospel will conquer. The kingdom will grow. And all you need to be is faithful. That's all you need to be. Because God is faithful to see your efforts through to the very end. And even if you lose your life, your martyrdom, your loss of life for the kingdom of the, of the Lord will do more than your life ever could. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we would do well to lay down our lives for the gospel. But I want to make a practical point here and say that Laying down your life and being loyal to those around you is the evidence that you're loyal to the one true king. You see, we want to do in our minds, maybe not even want, maybe want is a strong word. In our minds, we imagine that dedication to the king of kings and dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ necessarily means grander things necessarily means that we would conquer with the gospel and that 24,000 people would be saved. God may have that for some of you, but what I would suggest to you today, that victory in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ could look as simple as going to work every day, paying your bills, and loving your wife. That's the first sign of being transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when you and your wife fight or you and your husband fight or when your kids start to go astray, that you don't throw your hands up and say, forget this, I'm out, this is too hard. Well, let's move on. Let's skip down. That. Well, let's just go ahead and we're already almost there. And the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Agilom when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephim. So here they are. They're in a terrible spot. They are in a, in a cave which is somewhat fortified, but they're hiding in the cave uh, and trying to figure out what God would have them to do next. They're in this place of wonder they're in this place of struggle and they're surrounded or they're encamped uh, by the Philistines they uh, the Philistines have the upper hand in this in this strategy in this place that they're in right now and it says in verse 14 David was then in a stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem 
So here David is in this stronghold. He's got a fairly good place that he could defend, but it's, he's cornered. There, there's nowhere for him to go. It's not looking great. The Philistines, the army, uh, the great enemy of Israel are encamped in Bethlehem. They, they're not sure what to do. And David here, I feel like in this text, is in a place of just, man, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do in this situation? <clears throat> And then David says this, in this situation of maybe despair or starting to lean into despair or maybe not, maybe despair is a strong word. David was a very courageous man. Maybe in this moment of just wonder, God, how are you going to do this? What are we going to do? He thinks of an easier time. That's the only way I can understand the historical context of this text is that it, seem, it seems that if his mind goes to a, a, an easier time. He thinks back of a time in his life when he wasn't in this type of struggle and in this type of battle, and he longs for that time that he remembers where he was at uh, Bethlehem and he was just taking a drink of, of the well that was there by the gate and there wasn't all this turmoil. He says, and David said, and the Bible says, and David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. He longingly says this. It seems to, to, to paint a picture for me that he's thinking of an easier time. Let me ask you, folks, how many times have you been in a difficult situation? Have you been in a place of struggle, maybe a place of you feel like everything's closing in on you, right? You feel like the whole world is against you. You feel like the enemy's after you. Everybody's abandoned you. And up to this moment, we just read about the three, how they were loyal to David. So they were there, right? They were loyal. But how many times, even in the brief description of the characteristics of the three, did we hear about the armies that were David's army abandoning them, and it was only the three? So we hear of these great tales, and it must seem like at first reading that David will be like, praise God that I've got these loyal men around me that's ready to fight. But when we really examine the text, it could have easily been David's thought that I only have three out of thousands that would even stay by me. He's got the 30, but you know what I mean. I've only got a few that would remain faithful out of these thousands. Lord, what are you doing here? What's going on? Oh, how I think back. Is it true in your life that there are times when the enemy would convince you that it would be better to be back there in the easy times than it would be to be right here? And he tries to bring about these thoughts in your mind so that you may start thinking of giving up or laying down or turning back. But what we know to be true is that if those things would not have happened, if David wouldn't have found his way into this cave, if David wouldn't have found his way into this situation, then the victories that David would see and the spoils that he would take would never have happened. So we see even in the greatest of trying of circumstances, we see that the Lord remains faithful to his word and his purposes and his will. Amen? So even in those moments of just utter hopelessness, Never, ever, ever be dismayed and never, ever, ever give up. Now, we're going to continue on because I'm just talking about true loyalty yet. I've not got, gotten to the, the means of that loyalty. So here we see David in this place, and David says longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is, that is by the gate. Verse 16, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp. Now, I want to stop right there for a second. 
Did David command, and let's, let's be interactive for just a moment right here, okay? Did David command for his three to go to Bethlehem and get him a drink? No. Does it even say that David was talking to those mighty men when he just said, man, I'd like to have me a drink from, from the, the well at the gate of Bethlehem? Did, he even, did, it, did it even say that he said it to them? No. So what must, we can infer at least, that what, was, what were the three mighty men doing when David was speaking? What? They were listening. They were aware. They were listening to the needs of their leader. They were listening to the needs of their friend. They had their ears open to the needs of those around them and to those who they loved and to those who they were committed to. And they were willing to put themselves in harm's way in order to fulfill the needs and the desires of those whom they loved, of the one whom they loved. Now, Yes, that is the most biblical sentence I've ever said in this church, maybe, at least as much so. Because in our day, we'll take it to marriage for a moment, and then we're going to show some other implications. But in our day, our marriages are built on what can you do for me, not how can I lay my life down for you. But in every relationship that we're in, the New Testament says it as well. Do not think too highly of yourself, but consider other. Consider others more important than yourself. I think you can tell where the message is going and what the truest loyalty is, but we'll continue to take our time as we move in that direction. Let's continue here. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Now, what the text doesn't tell us is how they broke through. We don't know. They could have been very nifty and, and very agile and sneaky and they could have broke through the the enemy lines by uh, by by sneak attack maybe they went straight israel israeli ninja i don't know they could have snuck in and you know hey john okay grab me the bucket okay okay hey hey shema shema anybody coming no 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 no, no. i got eliezer get the bucket down there man hurry up right i don't know maybe they snuck in and got a drink of water they may have just, well, we do know that these were the baddest men that you could possibly want on your side. We do know that Josh killed 800 men with the spear. We know that Eleazar was so committed that he slay enough that they would have to peel the bodies away and that his hand clung to the sore hours of fighting at a time. We know that they were, were, were amazingly uh, tough, resilient, and skilled warriors. So they might have went in there straight laying people down, right? We don't know. But what we do know is, is that they risked their lives. What we do know is, is that they cared more about the desires. Now, I want you to ask yourselves a question. I'm going to ask you a question. Did David have to have the water from Bethlehem in order to live? No. It never says that anywhere in the text, right? Why? He just longed for it it was a desire it wasn't a need you starting to put this together the three mighty men they want they weren't doing what they were doing to save the life of their beloved commander they were doing it to fulfill a desire that he had it wasn't even a a, a, a necessity 
They put their lives on the line simply because he longed for a drink of water. Can you see the commitment and the loyalty that they would have had to have had in order to do what they did? It says, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of, of, uh, of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Now, I don't need to belabor that point. I think it's obvious just how loyal they, they didn't care if they died. Even to get him a drink of water just because he wanted it out of this particular spot. They put their lives on the line. What was David's response? And then we're going to move into some of the truest loyalty and, and the means of that loyalty. This is David's response, but he would not drink of it. But he would not drink of it. Now, I remember when I first read this text, I thought, what a prick. <laughs> that was my initial thought, right? Because I'm like, if I'm bringing back the cup of water, right, I just risked my life to get this water. I broke through the Philistines. I might have killed somebody. I might have stopped another human being from breathing so I can get this water. And then I had to tote this water however far back to this cave and make sure I didn't spill it. And here you go, king. Here you go, David. And I'm just waiting for you to drink it because this was some costly water. Right? It cost us a lot to get this water. I hope you enjoy this cup of water because this must be some phenomenal water that we risked our lives for. And David was like, Shh, what? You know, are you kidding me right now? Right? And I thought, man, that is such a jerkish move that you would make. But as I examined and, and as maybe I got a little older, maybe as I started to read uh, the New Testament, uh, in light of everything that was going on in some historical, immediate context, some cultural context for the culture that they were in. And as I watched, uh, um, what is that movie? Um, Minister Society, where he pours out in honor. Okay, some, like three of you got that, okay? Tip a little 40 for my homies, you know. I want you to see what's going on here. I'm going to read the rest of it, and I'm going to take this block in one shot, hopefully. He says, but he would not drink of it. Okay, you're like, man, that's, that's messed up. Okay, no, 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 let's ask. Okay, that seems weird, David. They went, you wanted it. They went through all this to get it. How are you going to do that to them? Well, let's see why. He poured it out to the Lord. So in Minnesota Society, they poured it out, you know, drop a little for my homies. He poured it out under the Lord. It was a drink offering in a sense that he poured it out under the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Do what? See, we fail to ask questions of the text, right? Not to question the text, but to ask questions of the text. Far be it from me that I should do this. Do what? Far be it from me that I should enjoy quenching my thirst on this wonderful water that was paid at such a high price. What he's saying is, and we're going to get to it, he's saying, this water is too valuable for me to drink. I am not worthy of the cost of this water. You see how now that flips the script, doesn't it? The three men come back, 
And instead of just enjoying the water and saying, you guys are awesome. You quenched my thirst. No, when they come back, he says, what? This cup of water is worth your life, and I'm not worthy of that. You, the loyalty, I could never be worthy of that. Let's, we're going to exalt the Lord with this. The Lord gets this drink of water. I'm not worthy of that. Essentially, he's saying, I don't know if you saw it this way. Essentially, he's saying that only the Lord is worthy of this type of loyalty. But David got that type of loyalty because they were devoted to the Lord. And David was the Lord's anointed. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. He said, he's saying here that this cup has the value of your blood on it because that's what you risked in order to bring me this cup of water. And I am not worthy. I will I will honor you by pouring out your sacrifice unto the Lord. The Lord is the only one worthy. So I've described for you. Now, we could go to countless places where we see loyalty like this. We, if you remember the story of Jonathan and the armor bearer, where they were, again, they were trapped by the Philistines, and Saul's like, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. And David's, I mean, uh, Jonathan tells his armor bearer, look, we're going to go up, and we're going to check these Philistines out tomorrow. And if the Lord gives us a sign, we're going to just whip them all. We're going to kill them all. And if he doesn't, we'll come on back. What's there to lose? And so he goes, and the Lord gives him the sign, and he goes to war with them. And just Jonathan and his armor bearer lays waste to the, to the armor. What we find is the armor bearer is completely loyal. We see it even in some crazy situations. How about David in the cave when Saul's, you know, uh, he's he's taking a pee break in the corner, right? Saul's taking a pee break in the corner, and David is actually encamped. This is where they were at war with each other. David's actually camp, encamped in that that cave, and Saul doesn't know it. He can't see. So he wanders in there, and he's relieving himself in the cave, and David is so close that he could have just slayed him and killed him. But what does he do? He takes his garment, and he cuts off the edge of it so he could show it to him later, and he does show it to him later. And when he comes to him later, he says, Saul, look. And his men, David's men, is like, you should have killed him. You're at war with him. He's trying to kill you. You should have killed him. And David says something to the effect of, he says, how can I lay my hand against the Lord's anointed? He later ends up killing the guy that killed uh, Saul, even though Saul asked him to. Why? Because who do you think you are? putting out your hand against the Lord's anointed. He shows that corner to, to Saul, and he says, I just want you to know how loyal I am to the man that's trying to kill me. I could have killed you, but I didn't. This is loyalty beyond all measures. And, and this is a good story, right? I could end here, and, and we could be like, oh, man, I'm motivated. I'm going to be loyal, right? I'm going to be one of David's three mighty men, right? And we walk out of here with our chest poked out, right? But the problem is, is that you know you. And I know me. And we know just how disloyal we can be. So we've got to ask ourselves, what is this about? Is this a good motivational story for me to lean on in my times of trial and in my times of, of need? Is this a, is this a good, uh, is this a good just example that I should go by? Well, I've 
describe to you this, this loyalty, this, this loyalty that is amazingly robust and, and wonderful to look at and to read about. We have great examples like this all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I want to shift now to look at Jesus Christ, who I believe is the ultimate example of loyalty, but not just the, the, the example, the ultimate example, but the means by which we can have this loyalty as a part of our lives as well, okay? So let's shift now and let's ask some questions of what was this story all about? Was it just a historical narrative to describe for us and give us facts about events that took place uh, pre-Christ in the Old Testament and the chronicles of what happened to David and his men and to Saul and the Philistines and so on and so forth? Is this just historical narrative that we can draw cool information from? Or is this pressing and pushing and drawing out lessons and principles and things that we will see in a greater way down the road. Now, if you know me, if you've been here at the church uh, much at all, you'll understand that I have a Christocentric uh, method of reading Scripture because what I want to know is how does the Scripture point to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Now, I, I do believe that we have to read the Old Testament in, his, in its historical context, in its immediate context, and we have to learn what is that author intending to convey to his audience, what's the story really actually about, and then we ask the question, how does that point to the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's not just because I like to do that, but Jesus said that all of the Scripture teach about him, John chapter 5. So let's ask some of those questions. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. In uh, theological circles, this is called Christus Exemplar, okay? He is our example. But not only is Christ our example, but he is the victory through which we can be like Christ's example, and that is Christus Victor, okay? That Jesus Christ is the victor. He is the, he is the one who facilitates out the only way possible for us to come to the place that he's actually at. And this is a wonderful truth of Christianity that is oftentimes, uh, it's, missed, it's missed out on, it's, it's misunderstood. We, especially in America and in the Southern Bible Belt, we preach Christ as this one and done thing to where you just pray a prayer and, man, you're good now. You've got your get out of hell free ticket. You've got your fire insurance. Hey, you're good. But the, the actual teaching of the scripture, th that's just utter silliness, borderline blasphemous, that you could in some way pray some prayer and get saved and then completely turn your back on God and walk away and never think about it again is, is utter foolishness. That the Bible teaches that a tree will be known by the fruit that it bears. And once you come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you're justified by the shed blood and by his propitiation, that you are now imparted with his righteousness and you are, you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that you might be sanctified, meaning that you would be conformed to the image of Christ more and more day by day, that you would start to display and that you would start to uh, emulate Jesus Christ more and more and more and more the closer you get to him and the more mature you get in your faith and so the question is not can we be saved from our sins past but can we be saved from our sins present and our 
possible sins future. Meaning that when Jesus Christ saves you from your past sins, he also saves you and grants you the power and starts working in you to overcome you and save you from being a slave to any future sins. And so you would become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. So Christus exemplar, but Christus victor, that he is the example, but he is the one who can make and, and be the means by which you, be conf you are conformed to his image and to his example. Okay, well, let's turn to some New Testament passages now and look at the truest loyalty, the most true, the truest loyalty, this Christus exemplar. Okay, if you will, turn with me. Well, we're going to stay in the Old Testament one second, and then we're going to move to the New Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Now, I'm going to do this around all types of thread. Threads run throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Biblical theology is one of the most amazing fundamental practices and arts, I think, in the Christian faith. And if you're not practicing and studying biblical theology, I really do believe that you should. As opposed, or not opposed, but in contrast to systematic theology. Biblical theology follows theology that runs through the Bible in threads or flows through the Bible. And it, it takes biblical themes and looks at it through a thematic sense or, or uh, maybe like a, a narrative sense or themes that run throughout the whole of Scripture and looks at the meta-narrative, the big story of it. Well, look in Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 12, and I want to... I give you this verse and then we're going to move to some new testament passages and in this i want to i want to kind of um focus on this idea of water and drinking water and the idea of this fountain this well that they went to get the water from and see if we can now i don't want to i don't want to tell you that you know this is exactly what it should be i believe that when we're doing work in the old testament and we're pulling out types and shadows and prefigures of Christ, I think we need to be careful uh, because the text means what the text means, but I think these insights can be very helpful. But they are insights that I believe that we can find uh, as we harmonize the text and as we look at the Scripture. We'll look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many to make intercession for the transgressors. I want to tie together here, try to find a, a, a point of uh, familiarity or parallel between the pouring out of the water, the pouring out, the drink, the drink offering, and I don't have a ton of time to do it. We're uh, coming to the end. And the way that Jesus Christ is the fountain of living water and he poured himself out even unto death and that he considered the life of those around him more important than his very own. Now, I believe this will turn, and I hope this is making sense to you. Y'all following me so far? You following so far? I don't know, brother. Right? All right. So let's look here. So we've got the mighty men putting their life at 
on the line to go get a drink of water for their leader. And when they come back, their leader says, I'm not worthy of your life, the risk of your life, your blood. Only the Lord is worthy of that. He pours it out and he is unwilling to drink. He honors the Lord and I think honors them as well. Jesus Christ has said, it says, therefore I will divide him a portion, that's Jesus, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured his soul, uh, because, he, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. So let's turn in the New Testament now to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verses 60 through 67. Let me read this and then we'll do a little bit of work. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Now, what did Jesus Christ uh, teach them in the preceding verses? He taught them about being the bread of life. He talked to him about them drinking his blood and eating his flesh. They talked to them about, uh, he talked to them, the disciples and the Jews and all of those. He was telling them that unless you drink of me, you will not have any life. He says it this way. He says, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you will not have life. Now, did he mean literally eat his life? They didn't just attack him and turn into carnivores, right? Well, I want life, you know. No, he was speaking in a metaphorical way saying that you must live on me. You must drink me in. You must have your sustenance in me. Jesus is the Logos. And the Bible says, Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's telling them that I am life. And unless you take me in and depend on me and get everything you need from me, you will not be able to have life because there is life nowhere else. There is nowhere else to have life. You must get it from me. Well, this is what he's talking about when they heard this saying, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now watch the loyalty and the disloyalty and abandonment. Let's see if we can learn from it. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you were to see the Son of Man sending to where he was before? And even in that statement alone, if we allow it to be in the historical context that it's actually in, the Jews understood, they would have necessarily understood that he was saying, well, what if you see me going back into heaven because I'm God, because I'm Yahweh. And all throughout the book of John, the gospel of John, we have the ego I me statements that I am, I am, I am. That Jesus Christ was declaring himself to be God. And he's saying, what if I went back into heaven? What if I were to ascend to that place where I was before? Essentially saying, I am eternal. I was always and will always be. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. He's saying the words that flow from my mouth, these are the words of life. This is life. That's why he can say, if you drink my blood then you, and eat my flesh, then you will be my disciples. He, that's why he can say, I'm the fountain of living water. That's why he can say, I'm the bread of life. Is because he is what you need in order to be sustained and have life. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now watch. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were uh, 
who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. There goes the Arminian position. No one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. The Father is sovereign over who will and who won't. He grants mercy according to his own will. It is not up to you. And he just said, the flesh is no help at all. It is God who is in control. And when you start saying things like, you have no control, but it is God who is in control. And so you better submit yourself and plead for mercy. And you must trust in me. Everybody's like, well, I want to be tolerant. I want to be inclusive. I don't care what you want to be. Jesus Christ was both intolerant and exclusive. Now he laid down his life for any who would believe. But only those who would believe. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if you desire to be saved. But watch what happens here. Now these are hard truths, right? He's telling these people who already thought that they had a relationship with God, that you don't have a relationship with God. And as a matter of fact, your father is Satan. Because he's the father of lies. And obviously the, the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. You bunch of liars. Right? You're not children of God. And they were going to kill him for it. And he said the only, reason, oh, the only way that you can become a ch child of God is to believe in me. To drink me in. To take me in. To trust in me. I'm the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but by me. Because I and the Father are one. Well, when these hard truths come out. When these tough truths come out, what happens? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They gone. It got hard. It got tough. It got rough. There was some conflict, some tough teaching. He didn't even slap nobody and they left. And I bet he shook every one of their hands too. That was a joke. I guess it just went, right? Bottom line is, is that it got tough and they got gone. No loyalty, no commitment, no steadfastness, they're gone. And it says, so Jesus said to the 12, and it seems like that everybody left but the 12. Everybody left him but the 12. And he says, do you want to go away as well? You're going to leave me too? You're going to leave me too? Now watch the response here. Now remember what we're looking at now. We're looking at the truest sense of loyalty and where it comes from. The truest sense of loyalty. We've already looked at true loyalty and it's, and it's wonderful. Now we're looking at the truest sense of loyalty and where it comes from. He says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them. Now, I'm sorry to my Armenian friends once again. But Jesus answers them. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He says, I chose every one of you. Now, I want to piggyback off of this. And I, I'm not going to spend the time turning there. But in Matthew chapter 16... We have this statement of, uh, about Peter. And so Peter stays loyal here, right? And it may be for a moment that we would say, oh, man, you know, 
Peter, man, he's, he's, he's strong. He's, he's got it going on, right? But we see even here that Jesus Christ was the one choosing these. Now, one turns out to be a devil, but was that part of the plan the whole time? That was a part of the plan the whole time, too. That God selected Judas in order for Judas to do what he did, that Christ might accomplish the work of God. But now let's ask ourselves the question, in this moment, Peter remains steadfast and loyal and has a wonderful answer. But what is the foundation of his answer? All right, we need to start moving a little bit. Matthew chapter 16 says this. Matthew 16, I wasn't going to turn it, but I am. Matthew 16, 15, what, is, what does it say? He said to them, who do you say that I am? Now, he'd already asked them, who do people say that I am? Some people say John the Baptist and, and whoever. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very similar to what he said in John. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now many have taken this verse, we've talked about this before, have taken this verse to mean that Peter was the rock on whom the church would be built. Some people take that interpretation, the Catholic Church surely does. But I would say that that is not the right interpretation of this text. But it would be, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, this rock being the faith, the revelation that Peter had that was given to him by the Father in heaven. It's the faith that God granted to Peter that Peter was able to proclaim that you are Christ, the Son of the living God. It is on that truth. It is on that gospel. It is on that that Jesus Christ will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so I submit to you today that the foundation and the means by which we are loyal is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new birth that comes upon our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we are faithful. John chapter 19, looking at <clears throat> that now okay so we see the the truest sense of loyal, loyalty and i could spend a lot of time there but i don't i don't think i have to we know that jesus christ pouring out himself even unto death is the truest sense of loyalty for whereas the three men went uh into the teeth of the philistines in order to get their king a drink of this water they were doing it and they were being loyal to the man who they admired, to the one whom they loved, the one whom had been there for them and had won their allegiance. Whereas Christ was loyal to those who had deserted him. So you see, it was while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in order to set us free. It, is, it, it was those that hated Christ that would crucify him only later to turn and repent and be granted faith and be born again under the power of God. It was for the unrighteous. The Bible tells us that Christ did not come to save the righteous but sinners. It's not the well who need a doctor but it's the sick. 
John chapter 7 speaks of uh, that same life of Christ and that same way that Jesus Christ is pouring out. He says, on the last day of the feast, John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone drinks, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We turn over to John chapter 19 and listen to what it says in verse 28. After this, John 19, verse 28, Jesus is on the cross. He's been beaten. He's been bruised. He's been battered. He's had the flesh ripped from his back. He's having to hold himself up so that he can breathe because his lungs and his weight, the weight of his body is bearing down on his lungs and he can't breathe, asphyxiating him and, and choking him to death. And so every time he longs to take a breath, he must drag his back up the cross, take a breath, and then he would slump back down. This is documented. It was a very well-known practice of the Romans who had perfected the cross. And they would place a small seat on the cross. I've told some of you this before. They would place a small seat on the cross about this big right under the, the bottom of the man so that the excruciating, which is a word that means from the cross, it was invented because the cross was so horrendous. They would put a small seat under the, under the man or the woman that, that, that was being crucified so that they wouldn't be able to slump down because many, to avoid the excruciating pain in the hours and hours and hours of agony, they would just slump down so that they could commit suicide because they would asphyxiate their lungs. Their lungs would fill with water. They would, they would basically drown themselves. They would, they would deny themselves air so that they could die because it was so horrible. And so what they would do, they would put, put this small seat on the cross so that it would prop the man and the woman up so they could continue to breathe so that the excruciating pain would, and humiliation would last for hours and hours and hours. And sometimes the men would just come off of the seat and come down anyway. So oftentimes, and excuse the crude example, but this is history, they would take the penis of the man and they would nail it to the cross as well so that he couldn't come off and slump down and kill himself. It was a means by which they would keep him on the cross. Jesus Christ, in this moment, in this, in this pouring out of himself, gets thirsty. Now remember that he had been lashed 39 times. He had carried his cross upon his, his gnarled back. He was so weak that he couldn't carry his cross. And then he had another man. They had demanded another man carry his cross for him. They carry it up to the place of the skull, Golgotha. They slide the post. Most likely they nailed him to the cross, picked the cross up and slid it into the ground where he hung for several hours. And in this moment, in this time where he is, he is going into the teeth of the Philistines for a people who presently do not love him. Some of his disciples, there were 11 there were some women, there were some others, but he had been all but abandoned. And even at the cross, you only have a couple. And in this moment, he has gone into the teeth of the lion, the enemy. 
to secure a drink of water for those who despise them. And in this moment, we have this verse, and it's always just captured my attention. And I spent some time researching this because I, I just thought it was fascinating. Verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. David said one time, in a manner of speaking, I'm thirsty. He was thirsty for a drink of water. He was, and as I speculated, admittedly, I can only read David's words when he says, longingly he said, how I wish I had a drink of water from, remember that well at the gate of Bethlehem? That was good water. Wish I had a drink of that. And somebody else put their life on the line to go get him a drink of that water and brought it back and he knew he wasn't worthy of it. So he poured it out into the Lord who was the only one worthy to drink. Jesus Christ who is the only one worthy to drink of the cup of loyalty. None of us are. Refuse the cup of loyalty and ease and pleasure. Instead, taking the cup of wrath so that we might take of the cup of life. You see it. Jesus Christ, who is the fountain of living water, was poured out upon the ground. So that you might drink of the heavenly rivers. That you might drink of the waters of life. Jesus says, I thirst so that your thirst could be quenched. He said, I thirst, verse 29, to add insult to injury. It says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. I always wondered about this because, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, so this won't be new information for you, but a lot of new people here. and It's been a while. I always wondered about this. It never made sense to me. That here they are, they have perfected the cross. They have perfected their means of torture so that it would, it would hand out and delve out as much pain, humiliation, and excruciating torment that you could possibly imagine. It was a science. And in this last moment, did they offer Jesus compassion? By taking the sponge, when he said, I thirst, were they even being partially loyal and sympathetic by taking the sponge and dipping it into the sour wine and reaching it to his mouth? And I thought, how could it be? 
And then I, I read this amazing article, and I, and I ended up finding this in several different places. I thought, that makes sense. In the old world, in this world culture, there, you, you need to understand that there was no, hygiene was non-existent like we know it. There was no toilet paper. There was no, there was no bathrooms on every corner. And so it was a really nasty culture. And, and, and that's where you get the extending of the right hand of fellowship. Because in that culture, you used your left hand to wipe. And so if you held out your left hand to somebody, then it was a sign of dishonor because you had poop all over it. Even if you washed it, there was, no, there was soap in a means of speaking, but not like we have. So you would hold out your right hand of fellowship. That's where we get the right hand of fellowship. That's why you almost always shake hands with your right hand. It's still around. So they would use their left hand to wipe themselves, and there would usually be water. Well, in that, in that culture, there was lots of disease, and there wasn't disinfectants like we know it. But vinegar was a pretty good disinfectant. And so in the places where they would go to the bathroom, and usually it would just be a of uh, like an outhouse type thing and a port it was a place where you would just use the bathroom into a hole and they would fill it in and then they would make another and in that place oftentimes if you were in a more well-to-do place there may be a sponge and you would just take some soured wine vinegar in that place and you would wipe yourself you would clean yourself and then you would use the sour wine to disinfect yourself so that disease wouldn't spread as much and so now, this is, this is just some research and some speculation, but I think the most streamlined, most, most logical reason why this would happen, I believe that this is why they offered this to Christ. It was not in honor of Him. They took the nasty, disgusting sponge and sour wine that was used to disinfect the genitalia region of the most disgusting people in this culture. And they took this sponge, they dipped it in this wine, and they shoved it in his mouth. The whole purpose of the cross was to shame him and absolutely degrade him. And now you see this Savior who you love, who is oftentimes displayed with muscles ripping out of every place and who's like this on the cross. Ugh. No. This man was broken, abused, humiliated, naked upon the cross, shamed beyond imagination, filth shoved into his mouth. And you can just imagine as they shoved that that stained, nasty sponge into his mouth and it squirted and all of those nasty germs and fecal matter running down into his open wounds, stinging as it went down his body. And all of that to hand you a drink of water. Living water. You hear me? All of that, that he might hand you a drink of the living water. That you would drink deeply. That 
you would be saved. David didn't need the water. He just had these ideas of past pleasures and ease. And so his men put their life on the line. You and I had a desperate need of the living water. So Jesus himself, who is the greater David, went into the teeth of the Philistines. He didn't risk his life. He laid down his life that you might have the fountain, that you might drink deeply. You see, when we see and understand the loyalty that the Lord Jesus Christ has to the Father and He has to the cause, we understand that there is nowhere else we could possibly be. And every other commitment to you, that you have in your life has to be rooted and founded in the loyalty that Jesus Christ had to the Father. And so you see, when I think about my kids, my loyalty to my kids is not based on how awesome they are or how horrible they can be. It's based on my love and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and greater what He did for me. You see, my devotion to my wife is not because she's awesome, even though she is, and she's hot. But even when she's mean to me, though she never is, I know and can say with confidence that I won't slash can't leave my wife. Even if it gets just horribly hard. Why? Because I'm that strong? No, because he was that strong. And some of you have made mistakes. Some of you have been teetering on the edge. And some of you right now are hanging one leg over and you're trying to stay up. And I'm calling you back. No, the Lord is calling you back. And He is saying two things. One, look at my example. Do you see the way that I did it? Do you see what I did? And we look and we say, yes, Lord, I see. But as many have said to me, but I'm not you, Jesus. I'm not you. I see, Jesus, I see. I see, Jesus, I see. I know, but I'm not you, Jesus. And the second thing that Jesus would say is, is that I know you're not me. And please never forget that I already knew you couldn't do it. And that's why through the power of the Holy Spirit and faith, I now live in you and I'm going to do it through you. Take heart, young soldier. Jesus Christ will complete the work that was began in the beginning. Do not trust in your own flesh. Do not trust in your own will, but you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there is nowhere else you can go but to the Lord. So as we all stand to our feet, you take what you heard today. We see true loyalty all throughout the Bible. We see the truest loyalty in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And we see the means to the greatest loyalty and to the truest loyalty of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and having faith in Him. And in that moment, He comes to dwell inside of you and the Spirit fills you up and gives you everything that you need in that time of despair that He would carry you through. And you would remain faithful because He remained faithful. Turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ and experience 
just what type of man you can actually be or what type of woman you, should, you could actually be. It's in Him you will find your peace. Do business with God.